You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. My name is Tyson, and I do the music here with a wonderful team each and every week. Um, that's my main set of giftings and where I'm most comfortable. Um, but I also have the privilege, if you don't know me, to, uh, of being an elder here and leading alongside of these other godly men um, and who inspire me and, and lead me to be um, a better father and a better husband. But then beyond that are teaching me daily what it means to care for Christ's flock. And occasionally that means that I have the opportunity to teach from the pulpit. Uh, it's not my uh, normal cup of tea, but at the same time I'm honored to be able to put these things into practice. Um, it's, it's good for me to do these things. But because of my normal inclination to be long-winded, I'm going to try to just jump right into it. Uh, my hope is not to keep you here forever, but if I do... Um, my apologies. No. Um, today we're going to be talking about the parable of the rich fool. As you know, we've been in parables the last couple of weeks, and I was actually kind of surprised that I picked this one. And the reason is, is because back in November of, uh, let's make sure I can do this. There we go. Back in November of 2020, I actually taught through uh, Matthew six nineteen through 23 when Adam asked Adam and Marcus and I to teach through Uh, that section of the Sermon on the Mount. And that particular section of scripture was about laying up treasures in heaven and you can't serve God and money and having a good eye and a bad eye and all that stuff. So in some ways it feels like I'm doing the same thing, but in a totally different way, this is kind of like a part two to that sermon back in November. So I reference it here. You can make a mark of it there as well. Part of my application at the end, I'll go ahead and tell you is going to be to go back and listen to these Matthew six sermons. Um, So, treasures and masters. Back then, the summary sentence for us was actually a Charles Spurgeon quote that says this, Hold everything earthly with a loose hand, but grasp eternal things with a death-like grip. Uh, I'm not going to reteach that. I'm going to leave that where that is. But the reason why today's different is because today's parable is like someone who's doing the opposite of this. Someone who is holding on to the things of this world with a death-like grip instead. So the summary sentence for today is this. Life is more precious, I'm sorry, life is more than the abundance of our earthly possessions, so we must therefore be on guard against all covetousness and seek to be rich in God. Again, life is more than the abundance of our earthly possessions, so we must therefore be on guard against all covetousness and seek to be rich in God. For kids, life is short, greed is dangerous, but God is good. If I can show those three things at all today, then I think that I'd be, I'd be happy with that. So let's jump into the setting. Um, the setting of this parable actually takes place in a larger context of Jesus teaching the people. My original plan was to read you this whole section, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of just overview it really quickly. So if you're looking in your Bibles, and I hope that you are, you'll see here in Luke 12, at least in my ESV, chapter 12 starts with beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. But if you back up one verse, one or two verses, Jesus, it says, as he went away from there, wherever he was in chapter 11, The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying and wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. So at this particular uh, point in Jesus's ministry, the persecution towards him is starting to ramp up 
and things are starting to get a little uh, nerve-wracking for the disciples. However, there's tons of people that still are interested in hearing from Jesus, because look at chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another. So let's just put the setting in the right place, is that Jesus is at a particular place where Pharisees are seeking to tear him down, but people are still interested in following him. Now, as we move on through the Gospels, we'll find out that people are interested in following him only when it suits their own interests, but some of these people haven't figured that out yet. That's why Jesus has thousands of followers, right? Uh, So much so that they're trampling on one another. This is a big, big deal. Okay, so instead of kind of reading verses 1 through 12, let me give you a summary. Uh, Jesus is surrounded by thousands of people, and he's teaching many comforts and warnings. Here's a couple of them. Beware of hypocrisy. Everything hidden will be exposed in the future. Don't fear man. Fear God. He has the authority over your soul. Men can only kill your body. God has authority over your soul. And get this, you are more valuable than many sparrows. God cares for them. How much more will he care for you? He won't forget you. But know this, there's a terrible penalty for ultimately rejecting Christ and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But as this persecution around you rises, don't be anxious about defending yourself. God's Spirit will be with you. Now, this is great. This is awesome truth. These would be great sermons in and of themselves right here because Jesus is speaking. But kind of under the setting here, I don't know if you notice, it says here in the setting, Jesus is speaking, am I listening? And the, where I get that from is the very next verse, verse 13. A man in the crowd interrupts Jesus, and he's way off topic. Okay, so let's just read from there. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Okay, so let's pause there before we go any farther. As a teacher, myself, I know what that's like, right? You're right in the middle of a lesson. You've been teaching for a long time. Hand goes up, and you're like, yes. And they're like, can I go to the bathroom? You're like, oh, really? Right, I actually had this kid last year. I won't name him, but he was notorious for this. Every time I would just open up my mouth, his hand would go up. I learned early on in the year it had nothing to do with the lesson. It was like, when are we going to talk about the things that happened in the Middle East in this time period? I'm like, bro, you're going to have to go ask your history teacher about that. We're, we're talking about Genesis right now. So there's, there's, there's this guy that just totally, out of the blue, interrupts Jesus. Brother, uh, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, the man is obviously not listening at all to what Jesus has been saying. Um, and that's, and that's true of any of us. Uh, we don't want to immediately jump on this guy. He's not a Pharisee seemingly seeking to damage Jesus' ministry. He's just a guy that's following Jesus, but he's thinking about what he wants to think about, obviously what's important to him. And it's so important that he hasn't been listening to Jesus. Um, we can assume that this guy, uh, he's arguing about his brother in this inheritance. We can assume that the brother is in the crowd. Uh, the parable doesn't tell us, or the section doesn't tell us that, but we can assume that because why else would you bring this up? Like, Jesus, tell my brother to do this if his brother's not there. So we can assume that maybe his brother's within earshot as well, and he's seeking some type of justice here. Either because in Deuteronomy 21, according to the law, the firstborn 
is supposed to receive a double portion of an inheritance. So kids, just to remind you, an inheritance is earthly possessions left behind by parents usually when they pass away. So an inheritance are those earthly possessions that are left behind. And this guy's upset because maybe his father and mother have passed away. There's an inheritance involved and the brother's not sharing. So either one, the brother was really bad and he took both portions and did not share anything, which gives this guy justification for why he's appealing to Jesus. Tell my brother to share his part. And St. Augustine and others believed that that was the case. But lots of other commentators as well believed that it was different. Maybe the elder brother was given exactly what the law said that he should be given, the double portion. But this guy is unsatisfied with his portion. So we can see that both of these things are issues. He's appealing to Christ because he feels that it's unfair. I don't know which one it is, but either way, this guy is still way off topic. So next, Jesus then responds to the man. Let's read in verse 14. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Now that sounds a little like not kind. right? Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? But really, honestly, I think in this case, Jesus knows what he came to do. He came to share the gospel. He came to to advance God's kingdom, not to arbitrate over whether or not who's right or wrong in a particular sense of an inheritance. Here's a quote. Though Jesus came not to be a divider of men's estates, he did come to be a director of their consciences about them. So for anybody that's reading that and is kind of confused about what that's saying, even though Jesus didn't come to solve issues like this for this guy, he did come to talk to that guy about the heart condition behind his desire. Does that make sense? He came to direct our consciences about them. That comes from Matthew Henry. So Jesus teaches an important truth. He gives a warning and a truth. And this is where our summary sentence comes from. I didn't come up with that summary sentence. Jesus did. Okay, because this is where it comes from. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. There's a warning. Take care. Be on guard. And then there's the truth. Your life does not consist in the abundance of what you possess. So kids, covetousness, if that's a big word that you're not really sure how to define, Let's make it really simple. It's a greedy desire to have more. Okay? Greedy desire. Greedy desire. Okay? We'll make it really simple. Big word covetousness equals greedy desire. So greed isn't just the kid or the sibling with all the candy that's unwilling to share, hoarding it up. Right? It is, but it's not only that. It's also the other kid or the other sibling with no candy crying to mom demanding that they share. Do you hear both sides of that? In fact, here's another great quote from great Scottish preacher Alistair Begg. Covetous greed is not simply represented by our hands full holding on, but is also represented with our hands empty grabbing on. So Jesus is, he sees there's an issue here with this guy's heart. There's covetousness, but 
the man in the crowd may not have actually gotten the fact that Jesus was talking to him. I mean, he wasn't listening before, right? He might have just dropped this and was just like, <laughs> can't wait to hear what Jesus has to say about this. And then as Jesus starts talking about covetousness and greed, he's probably like, yeah, I hope my brother's hearing that. That's option one. Option two is that he totally picked up on the fact that Jesus was talking about him. And this would have been super embarrassing. So let's go into what Jesus then decides to do. Since he's not there to arbitrate between issues like this, but he is there to help men and women with their heart motives underneath it all, he gives them a story. And the story is the parable that we're looking at today. Verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So, the parable, verses 16 through 20. I'm going to go to 20, not 21. Greedy desire is dangerous. Am I on guard against it? So the first section, Jesus is, is speaking. Am I even listening? Now he's going to give us a story that shows that greedy desire is dangerous. Am I on guard against it? And he's going to go through this parable. We'll take it one verse at a time. Look back at verse 16. Verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Notice here that the man is already rich, which means that he may have been some businessman who had land, And whether he expected it or not, this particular season yielded a very large crop. Okay, so this isn't some, uh, it can be assumed that here that there's personal hard work involved. Uh, He has a lot of business smarts. I mean, he's a successful farmer businessman. Proverbs mention lazy men coming to ruin and poverty with their devotion to their sleep rather than hard work. And this doesn't seem to be someone that is that way. And he doesn't seem to stumble across great wealth, but he seems to have had cumulative lands that have produced plentifully. So a rich man has just become far richer. Verse 17. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. Notice the man in all of his plenty is surprisingly anxious. He says, what shall I do now? Now, for me, this was, this was kind of confusing, right? While this man is a successful, prosperous individual whose crops yielded much produce, why is he just now thinking about where to store his crops? Was he not paying attention during the whole time of the harvest, like as it was growing and been like, you know, I don't think all this is going to fit. Like, was he distracted by other things or did his crop just miraculously give forth more than he ever could have projected. Either way, he's suddenly aware that he doesn't have enough room. The parable doesn't tell us which one it is, but what is clear is that although material blessing is given here, it doesn't always bring about the peace that it often promises, right? So oftentimes I might fall slipping into a, a, a covetousness desire and think that if I have more of whatever, it doesn't even have to be money, more of whatever, I will be more at peace, 
Well, here we see someone that just has a whole bunch. He already had a lot. Now he's got even more, and he's suddenly anxious. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? You can imagine, I mean, win the lottery, sure, that's awesome. But now you've got to think about all those family members that are always going to come at you for the cash. You've got to think about taxes. You've got to think about what you're gonna, where you're going to store your stuff. There's a lot of things that come about here by having more. Um, it can often be true that the more that one has, the more cares and anxieties they have about what they have. Verse 18, though, he comes up with a solution. He says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Notice here first that this man doesn't want to take up any more prosperous lands by building other barns. He doesn't look at his crops and say, man, I've got a problem. I need to take down some crops over here and build barns. He's, he says, no, I don't want to take up any more room. I need to tear down the barns that I already have, and I need to build bigger ones. Now notice here, Jesus is, by the way, I'm not here to produce any guilt or to try to convince us that we should feel bad for when we decide to upgrade things in our life, right? I oftentimes have this anxiety that this guy is feeling about my kids in my home. What am I going to do with all the kids? Where am I going to put them all, right? I have a very small place. What should I do? If I decide to buy a bigger place to house my family, that's not the issue here, right? We have a similar situation. We once met in this building, and then we expanded to the room next door. Getting a larger car, right? All of these things are not the issue. The, uh, the desire to build bigger barns was not the bad thing. In fact, it might have been a wise idea how to handle the abundant crops. But Jesus is going to show that his intent, his motivation, his heart condition behind it was all wrong. It was to store up all of the increase for himself and place all of his hope and his identity in his earthly treasure. We begin to see his heart perspective here. Where shall I store my crops? Oh, I know. I'll store up all my grain and my goods. Notice at some point, he's not just talking about storing up his grain. He's talking about building big enough barns to store up all of his other goods. He's now including his goods in his plans, not just his crops. But then verse 19 is really where things start to to reveal themselves. And then I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Notice here nine times in verses 18 through 19, he's referring to himself in some way. Uh, Let's just read it again, and I'll count. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods And I will say to my soul, soul, you have goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Oh, he spoke to his soul. There's nine. Okay. Nine times he's referring to himself in some way. What is missing from here? What is missing when I read this is there is no mention of God, no mention of gratitude for any of this increase. In farming, there is only so much one can control whether he's the guy that's actually out there tilling the land or whether he's the great business delegator and has teams of people doing this for him, they till the land, they plant the seed, and then what? All the rest. Yeah, they wait. God does all of the miraculous growth as they wait. And now he's, he has yield of, of tremendous increase. 
No mention of God. No awareness that God was the source of all his good. What else is missing? There's no awareness of stewardship. There's no mention of other people. No friends, no family. He's having this conversation with himself. There's no intention at all to bestow any of this increase anywhere else except his barns for his own extended pleasure. But beyond this, Jesus is revealing here something even more concerning. This has become a whole life matter because look at 19. He's not speaking to his body. Hey, body, you've got like all this stuff. You're going to be excited and things are going to go well for you for many years. He's speaking to his soul. This has become this, this intense thing where he's speaking with a disillusioned authority that somehow he's the master of his life and all of his possessions are the key to abiding joy and lasting life. Again, there is missing any awareness or consideration for God or others, and the focus of all this was for his own pleasure. This is what um, people have called hedonism. Hedonism is that serving or loving of pleasure alone. The great goal of life is for me to be pleased. Now this eat, drink, and be merry, we actually read that again in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul is writing, but he says that we should only have that perspective if Jesus isn't alive from the grave. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, that if Jesus isn't raised from the grave, then let us just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But this is not the case. Jesus is alive. So living for the here and now, what a loss and what foolishness. In fact, he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15, 34 and tells them, wake up from your drunken stupor. So there's this awareness, right? We've got to wake up because of verse 20. Look back at verse 20. I will say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, who will they be? Whose will they be? This very night your soul will be required of you. This shows us there's an obligation to God. He has creator rights over his creatures. Hebrews 9.27 is one that you might know. It says, it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. If you don't like that, there's nothing we can do about that. It's appointed for us to live and then for us to die and then for us to stand before our maker who owns us. No amount of pleasure or distraction will keep this from happening eventually. James 1.11 Goes on and says that the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the middle or in the midst of his pursuits. Not once he's reached it all and accumulated it all and sitting there thinking, this is awesome. It's in the middle. He's just cut short. James 4, 13 through 17 goes on to tell us that we should have this type of mindset, that we should fight against this pride. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade to make a profit. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boasting in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. There's a couple of biblical examples. We won't take the time but there are people who in their pride in the midst of their pursuits were cut short. You've got Belshazzar in Daniel 5. That very night, his life was ended. 
You've got Nabal, who, the husband of Abigail, who's uh, having a feast in his own home. This is in 1 Samuel 25. He's merry and drunk, thinking all these things are great. And 10 days later, the Lord strikes Nabal and he died. Herod, even in Acts 12, does not give glory to God. God strikes him down. There's these individuals that think they've arrived. They think they have it all, and yet their life is cut short. Absolute and ultimate foolishness to live a life of atheism or hedonism. Atheism is living. Kids, don't forget, like, that's like God's not there. I don't believe God's there, so I'll do what I want. And then again, hedonism is I'll do whatever pleases me because that's my ultimate God in my life is my own pleasure. Unbelievers live in this realm of thinking by default. So if you're here today and all this sounds confusing, all this Jesus stuff is confusing to you as well, you're, you're born into this way of thinking by default. The only thing that you can live for is this world. And, and that insatiable desire that you've tried to seek after and found that nothing satisfies it, there's a reason that nothing satisfies that desire. And it's because you weren't made to live for this world. C.S. Lewis even has a quote that says, you were made to live for another world. So no matter what you try to find joy and satisfaction in, it won't satisfy you. But even for believers, this is such a tempting draw, such a tempting temptation. Live for what you see, build your kingdom here. Psalm 73, if you'll mark that down if you're taking notes at all, I I really wanted to read it, but I'm going to keep moving. Psalm 73, 1 through 17. There's a psalmist who is upset because he looks out and sees a lot of big barn guys, people that are prospering, people that have it all. And it's, God, why don't I have that? Why is the the wicked prospering? And there at the very end of verse 17, he mentions, then I went into the temple and then I perceived their end. It's like he went in to talk to God about these, these issues that he has with the wicked prospering and then he realized, oh wait, let me fast forward to the end. Okay, now that I realize their end, I'm not so jealous over their situation anymore. Psalm 73, 1 through 17. Go read that. It's very helpful. So now let's move ahead. Jesus has told us this parable. We've looked at it verse by verse. We see that Jesus is talking about man, uh, man A, this rich fool. But let's not forget that there was also the man who interrupts. Okay, so there, he's, he's speaking to the crowd as a whole and to his disciples just brilliantly. And he's going to give us these life lessons. And Jesus is going to speak these life lessons. And the question I want to ask us all today is, will I believe him on these issues? This is my third and final point, but this is kind of the meat of everything that we're kind of breaking things down for. Okay, so there's three areas I want us to, to see here. Jesus is in some ways going to remind, uh, call us to remember something, to repent something and to realize something. And I put, there's no particular order there. Some of you here today might do well of remembering things and that leads to repentance. Others of you don't even realize it. Just start with repentance, right? As we go through these things, I'm not saying this is the right order. I'm just saying here are three things. You can divide them up later. The rich fool, he speaks to his soul. So I would like for us to actually speak to our souls as well, but in a different way. So life lesson number one, soul, remember your own mortality and seek to be rich in God. Soul, remember your own mortality and seek to be rich in God. 
If you're confused about what that means, just hold up. Remember, I stopped the story at verse 20. The parable stops at verse 20. God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? That's the end of the story. But then Jesus looks up at maybe the man, maybe the crowd, maybe his disciples, maybe everybody. And he says, verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Kids, remember, life is short. Let's get ready to meet God. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This so is the one is one statement that Jesus makes that now makes anyone in this room, especially me, the potential rich fool. He didn't just end the story and say, you there, son, or man, you're the rich fool. He says, so is anyone who lays up treasures for themselves and is not rich towards God. But again, remember, I'm not here to say that owning stuff or having a big house or having this or that is wrong. Remember that the issue here isn't laying up treasure for yourself. In Matthew 6 sermon, it's you do need to lay up treasure for yourself, but lay up the right treasure in the right place. Okay, the issue here is not being rich towards God. Laying up treasure isn't the issue. The issue is not being rich towards God. And that would be evidenced by what our treasure is, where it's laid up, and for whom. Watch, what's our treasure? Anything other than God. Okay, well then where are we going to lay it up? Right here, right now. For whom is it laid up? For me. Right, but on the flip side, what's our treasure? Jesus is my treasure. Where is the treasures that I'm laying up now? In heaven, eternal. For whom are they laid up? For the glory of God and for my good. There's a, there's a distinctive difference in our perspective about treasures. The issue here is buying into the lie that meaning and happiness and identity and purpose can be found in anything or anyone else other than God. That's number one. The lie that there's identity and happiness found in anything other than God. But then get this, number two, here's the scary one. There's another lie that there's plenty of time to enjoy those things without thinking about God. There's not plenty of time. Sinclair Ferguson, another great Scottish preacher that I like listening to, tells a a fictional story about the enemy seeking to tell lies to an individual to kind of get them into this mindset. And they're discussing against or, or with one another and what lie should we say? And one of them says, we should tell them that there is no God. And they says, no, 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 that won't work. The awareness of God is written on their hearts. Oh, okay. We should tell them that there's no coming judgment. No, 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 no. The awareness of judgment is written on their consciences. They know that. Ah, the other one says, we should tell them that there is no hurry. Yes, that will work. Let's use that lie. The real issue is simple. When that time of death comes for us and all physical treasures are left behind at death, will we be spiritually bankrupt when we meet God? Will we have been found to be rich in God? This reminds me of the muckrake man in Pilgrim's Progress. There's this image that Pilgrim sees of this guy just mucking in, or raking, I guess, in the muck. And there's an angel like with a crown of, uh, of jewels offered above him. And he's just like totally not even aware that it's offered to him because he's just content doing his thing over here. Alistair Begg, 
again, with the Scottish preachers. Maybe I need to branch out here. Uh, Alistair Begg has this great thing he said in a sermon that's really helpful for just asking your unbelieving friends. Here's a great conversation starter. Ready? And then what? Question mark. Right? Think about it for our youth. Youth, what, what, do, you, what do you want in life? Well, I, I want to I go to, I graduate high school. Great, good. And then what? Well, then I want to go to college or I want to go to a great sports uh, place and play for a team professionally or get a good job. Okay, and then what? Well, then I'd get the job and I'd, I guess I'd do well and make money. Okay, and then what? Well, then I guess I'd work for my whole life. And then, and then what? Retire? And then what? Well, I guess I'd grow old. And then what? Die. And then what? Right? Just keep asking because everyone in this room has to answer that eventual and then what? It all leads to the same place. This is why in my living room, I have signs as big as these in our walls. Only one life will soon be passed. Another one. Only what's done for Christ will last. My favorite quote, but I'm the guy that needs it postered on his living room to remember. And even then, I just walk by him every day and don't even look at him, right? But it's there to kind of help, even if I just look for a second and remember, only one life will soon be passed. First Timothy 6 a passage we talk about. We brought nothing into this world. We can't take anything out of this world. And guys, I got to just tell you, a week and a half ago, we moved one of my grand, uh, my last living grandfather into a memory care facility. He, he, as long as my life is, you know, as long as I've been living, the guy has been, he, he's a lover of restoring old cars. He does have a really big barn full of big tools. I don't know exactly where his heart is, but what I can tell you is this. When my dad and I showed up in my truck, we thought we'd have to hook up a trailer to help get his stuff to the memory care facility. We didn't need the trailer. We used my truck, and the only thing that we put in the truck was a twin-size bed and mattress and a dresser. So, at the end of all of his possessions, at the end of all of his life, here at the end, it's boiled down to a bed and a dresser. What about the big barn? What about all the tools that are still sitting there? Whose will they be? If we live for these things only, can't we see why God says it's foolish? My other grandfather, who's passed years ago, he did lay up treasures in heaven. He was, my grandmother would get so mad at him for giving away money, right, to strangers and other things. Like he, he was constantly living and serving the Lord. And my dad, when I told, my dad was sitting in the car with me, with my grandfather's stuff in the back of the truck just last week. And I told him, I said, isn't it crazy that this can be boiled down to his possessions? And my dad said, yeah, it really hit home for me whenever my dad, my, pre- my other grandfather that died years ago, when we took him to his memory care center right before he passed, he had a $10 bill in his wallet and that was all that he had, right? I know that's not all that my granddad has. He is rich in God, but it was evidence by what he how he lived his life. Now, that doesn't mean that if you live a, a, a prosperous life and leave an inheritance to your children, that that's wrong. That's actually pretty wise, right? To take care and save up. and to do, It's all about the heart condition behind it. My stuff, my goods, I will eat, drink, be merry for me, 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 me. So how can we be rich towards God? I'll try to speed up here. Being rich in God, first and foremost, starts with embracing Christ and salvation. If you're not a Christian, you're not rich in God. You're absolutely destitute, naked, dead, blind, and poor. 
But all of that can change by coming to Christ, trusting in him, gaining a spiritual inheritance that will never fade, that will never perish, where neither moth nor rust destroy. Turning to Christ. But then practically, when by faith we invest in eternal and heavenly things at the expense and the loss of the here and now, in the things that we have now. Again, when practically by faith we invest in eternal, lasting things at the expense or loss of what I might possess in the here and now. Think of Jim Elliot, who leaves the comfort of his country to go and take the gospel to a tribe who didn't have it and was then martyred in the process. He says he is no fool Actually, I think I have it here. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Another one by Matthew Henry. A good man who's taken his heart off from this world cheerfully resigns his soul at death and gives it up. But a worldly man has it torn from him with violence. It is a terror to him to think of leaving this world. Number two, repent. So remember and repent. Actually, I skipped this whole part. It's really important. How can we be rich in God? I wanted to encourage our church family. In our own church, laying up treasures looks like these things that I'm observing right now. People who are sacrificing duties or using vacation time at work to be chaperones on a youth trip, laying up treasures. People who are investing their retirement time and their minimal income to take care of other people's children people who serve in various ministry capacities without pay, without thanks. People who are giving hard-earned resources to meet the needs of others. People who say goodbye to family and friends and move away for the sake of gospel ministry. People who are constantly on their knees interceding and praying for others when only God is the one that knows and sees them. Totally thankless. Nobody knows. Finance teams that build percentage-based budgets so that more is given away and a pastor who asks for an annual cap so that he does not continue to accumulate more and more when percentages rise. I'm not talking about a hypothetical church, people. I'm talking about this one. And a church as a whole who, although small in number, continues to give disproportionately more than anyone could ever expect or project. And then an encouragement for me, under shepherds, who labor in teaching the word, counseling, and carry others' burdens. I wouldn't, I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that this job is hard. But in First Peter, it talks about there's a crown laid up for those that lead and wait for Christ's return. Number two, repent of idolatrous desire and be on guard against all covetousness. Man, this is so important. So much. Watch out. Like a fishing lure, greed can hook us, kids. You know what a fishing lure is. It's dangerous, for the fish at least. It's disguised. It's deceptive. Uh, We'll skip this quote. St. Augustine at the bottom basically says, if Jesus says beware, we should probably listen up. I'll give you this one, though, because uh, it's a good one. And also Chris just posted about J.C. Ryle on Friday. Covetousness is a sin which ever since the fall has been the productive cause of misery and unhappiness upon the earth. Wars and quarrels and strifes and divisions and envyings and disputes and jealousies, hatreds of all sorts, both public and private, may nearly all be traced up to the fountainhead of covetousness. 
Covetousness is seen, remember, again, greedy desire. Greedy desire. It's seen in Exodus 20. It's one of the commandments. It's the last one. Do not covet your neighbor's house, wife, servants, animals, anything that's your neighbor's. Romans 7, man, if you would read that, it's awesome because Paul basically says, I was really good at keeping the law, but guess what? The law said do not covet, and all of a sudden I realized I was sinful because covetousness was in me, and the law exposed it, and I died because of it. Paul felt overcome by covetousness. It was the sin that exposed what was truly within him. Again, that's Romans 7. 7 through 11, if you're taking notes. Covetousness is subtle. It's difficult to detect in ourselves, which is why we, Jesus tells us, to be on guard. Keep a jealous watch against all covetousness. And all, of course, means all kinds and types. This is not just about money. Remember, this is a greedy desire. This is huge. Most of us in this church, I think if not everyone, would say that we do not worship idols. I don't think that you're going home and bowing down to a little stone image. If you are, then you should probably come talk to somebody about that. But I don't think that you are. But here's something that's really, really eye-opening. Write down Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, comma, which is idolatry. Evil desire and covetousness is idolatry. So although I can tell you, I don't think anybody in here is worshiping idols, I can tell you there's at least one guy in here that's tempted towards idolatry every day if you define it as covetousness and evil desire. This is a big deal. Setting our heart's desire on something or something else other than God is ultimately idolatry. What or who we covet is oftentimes a good indication of what or who we worship. In fact, write this down, James 4. We won't take the time to unpack this, but it says what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not ask and receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. There is this evil desire that's potentially there for all of us. We all can be the rich fool. So is anyone. Why do people fight and quarrel according to James? Because they've allowed their greedy desires to grow to an idolatrous position. Maybe you don't want more money. Maybe you have a greedy desire for more of something else, a better job, better marriage, a particular job, a particular person, more opportunities for advancement, more respect, more recognition. Whatever it might be, watch out. Be on guard. Even though our church is filled with many people that I know who are laying up treasures in heaven right now, the temptation towards covetousness can be quick, so we must be on guard. Maybe that guy in the parable, the rich fool, was a rich fool the whole time. Maybe he was covetous his whole life like Scrooge. And so this was just par for the course. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he suddenly came into all this unexpected yield and said, this is what I'll do. Maybe it happened then. We've got to be on guard. There's lots of other verses on greed that I can share with you on the realm. Lastly, life lesson number three, realize your worth is not in what you own. So trust God to provide. Verse 15, we're going all the way back. He says, 
Don't you know that your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions? Kids, if we trust in Jesus, if we have Jesus, we have everything that we need. This is why in this section, Jesus then goes on from verse 22 to 34, and he continues to teach his disciples and people. He steps away from this whole parable, and he goes back to this. Don't be anxious about your life. Life is more than food or clothing. Birds don't sow or reap or have barns. God feeds them. Lilies don't spin or weave. God clothes them. Don't seek food and clothing or be worried. Instead, seek the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. Sell your possessions, lay up treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Get this, David Guzik says, greed and worry are closely connected. Greed can never get enough, but worry is afraid it will never have enough and neither have their eyes on Jesus. Okay, so remember your mortality and seek to lay up treasures. Be rich towards God. Two, repent of any idolatrous desire that you are aware of. And if nothing comes to mind, then just at least be on guard because five minutes from now, we might be tempted towards that. But then lastly, remember, or realize that our lives are worth more than what we own. There's a promise to claim here. Seek God's kingdom and all these things will be added. Colossians 3 says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Two questions as we end. And then I want to take five-minute reflection time. So we're going to be five minutes late, I think. That's okay. Who am I most like in this story? Okay, am I like the rich fool? If you're lost in here, yes. You're living for this life only. I'm calling you to come meet Jesus. He gives you riches that are far more valuable than anything you could ever imagine. And like a parable in Matthew about a guy who finds a treasure hidden in a field, once he discovers it and realizes what that treasure is, he sells everything that he owns in order to obtain it. If you could just come and see that the Lord is good, come taste and see, you'd sell everything that you have to obtain what Jesus offers. This is what allows the poorest Christian in the world to have joy. And this is what allows that martyr to walk that pathway to the stake to be burned because they realize their life does not consist in what they have here. But also don't forget, rich fools are not just unbelievers. We could all be tempted in that way too. But two, I want to go all the way back to the man in the crowd. Am I more like the man in the crowd? Because I'm not listening to Jesus right now in my life and I'm mad I'm not getting what I want. I'm not satisfied or content with my situation, whether it's my financial situation or any other situation in life. I'm not satisfied and I'm relentlessly in pursuit of what I don't have. And I'm even disregarding unity and relationships in the process in order to obtain. If that's you, go back to James 4 and read that. Then lastly, are we more like the disciples that are standing by trying to figure out what's going on as Jesus is talking to this guy and talking about rich fool? I want to follow Jesus, but I'm also kind of scared. Are we fearful and anxious, feeling the pull towards the world while also realizing that following Jesus is worth it but costly? Just take some time this week to think about this as you read back through it. Who am I in this story? And then number two, is there any area I'm ignoring Jesus because I'm too focused on what I want? This goes back to that guy again. This is just a, a question I've been asking myself. God's word is in front of me. I can read it every day, but sometimes I don't because I'm too focused on what I want to do or I don't feel that sitting down listening to a sermon about greed is what I really need right now, right? 
Maybe that might be you sitting here today. I get it. I, I wouldn't necessarily want to listen to me either. But is it possible that Jesus is trying to teach you something, but we're too busy thinking about other things? Here's a big quote, and then I'm going to show a video and we'll be done. You probably can't read this, so just listen. J.C. Rowell, one last time. Such a man is truly rich. His treasure is incorruptible. His bank never breaks. His inheritance never fades away. Man cannot deprive him of it. Death cannot snatch it out of his hands. All things are his already. Life, death, things present, and things to come. 1 Corinthians 3.22 And best of all, what he has now is nothing compared to what he will have hereafter. Riches like these are within the reach of every sinner who will come to Christ and receive them. May we never rest until they are ours. To obtain them may cost us something in this world. It may bring on us persecution, ridicule, and scorn. But let the thought console us that the judge of all will say, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Revelation 2.9 The true Christian is the only man who is really wealthy and wise. I put in my notes, I want to hear God say in the end, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Versus hearing him say, you fool, you gained the whole world, but you lost your soul. Remember when Marcus said in his sermon, Jesus, I hear you're inviting me to a banquet. May I be excused? Here's one for this one. It's like, Jesus, I hear what you're saying, but can you be quiet and listen to me instead? That's what this guy was saying. So whether it's a rich fool in his possessions or it's the guy that's just not listening, there's lots for us here to think about. But our worth is not in what we own. It's in the fact that as a Christian, if you're in here today as a Christian, you were bought by the blood of Christ. Two practical things. Listen back through the Matthew 6 sermons. I can post a link for them on the realm. If you're not connected on the realm, let me know. I'll get you connected. And then also in the month of June, we read through Uh, the book of Proverbs. A group of us read through the Proverbs, and it was awesome. And I'm just going to start a new plan tomorrow, reading through Matthew, so that these parables and these truths can be there present. If you don't have a place to read in the Bible right now, come join us. I'll put a link on the realm as well. You can jump in. We have daily uh, thoughts that I'll seek to add that will help encourage us in our faith. I'm going to pray for us, and then again, if you'll just give me five more minutes of reflection time on the screen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for your love and your mercy. God, I pray that you would help us to process this. Uh, God, there are so many jumbled thoughts that I know that I have on paper and in my head. So many things I've skipped, so many things I said that weren't even written down. I don't know what the people in this room need to hear. But God, what is abundantly clear is that Jesus is speaking. He's speaking in his word. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to listen. I pray that you would give us hearts that are willing to seek God and his kingdom above all and that you would show us and and, and allow the truth to penetrate deep within us that our worth is in the fact that we're known by you and forgiven by you and not in the things that we own or the status that we may achieve in this life. We pray that you would be honored now as we reflect on these things. Thank you for this song and the words here that will help us do that. It's in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.